Hi guys, just Felicity. Um, after I've recorded part one with the guest on this episode, we were competing with all kinds of different things, um, sick children, uh, me losing my voice, dogs barking, cats talking. Um, so if that's going to upset you um, for part one, we really have no control over it um, at the moment. But um, this is part one and I feel that it's a really kind of in-depth discussion. There'll be multiple parts of this episode which Marissa and I already planned for. Um, so I hope that you enjoy it thus far um, and Marissa's uh, podcast debut. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 148 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. <clears throat> I have a guest on today, which is good because I'm losing my voice, as you can tell, coming down with something, but this person will probably do most of the talking and you'll probably want to hear what she has to say. But first off, I want to welcome new patron Carol and Mac. Thank you for coming on board. Now, I would like to welcome a guest on today to discuss the most famous aviation mystery in history. Uh, the second missing plane we have covered on this podcast, the first being Ben Padilla's disappearance with his plane and crew in Angola. I connected with this guest through the podcast in its really early days. We've been talking since pretty much around episode, uh, I think, 40 or something and they became a patron really early on um, and she reached out to me regarding Ryan Chambers case initially and since then we've kind of been pen friends across the world. I mentioned this um, person back on episode 55 at the time we were planning on doing an episode this episode 100 episodes ago and I think the universe is, just doesn't want us to do this um, because She's got a sick daughter tonight. I have a uh, no voice and we've also got a 16-hour time difference between us to compete with. Um, so she will be doing this entire episode and I will be the co-host because this case is just too much for me to kind of get into myself. I think it's just, it's been one I've always been interested in, but not the level that this person is. This guest is an armchair detective of sorts who loves a mystery and MH370 is her speciality. We connected over our interest in diving deep into cases that interest us. And I trust this woman entirely with her research. In fact, I have said to her, if anything happens to me, I decided about a year ago that this person will be the new host of the show. <laughs> Some people might prefer that. So she's got a great voice. She explains things amazingly and she's become a really good friend. And I hope you like her as much as I do. She's never done a podcast before, but I'm sure she'll smash it. So dialing in from 16 hours in the past from Australia to the other side of the world is Marissa. Welcome, Marissa. Hi, Felicity. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for that beautiful little introduction. Um, I love this podcast and I was so excited when Felicity allowed me to do this because I just love her research style. I love that it's so holistic and so comprehensive and that she is so attentive to the humanity of the victims that she's covering. So thanks for having me. I appreciate oh, it. Um, before we get into the case, can you kind of 
as much as you feel comfortable talking about, um, tell listeners a bit about yourself. Um, first of all, uh, you don't have to say where you're from. I mean, obviously you're American. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So no, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with that. So I am, yeah, my name's Marissa, as Felicity mentioned, and I am a mom of three, uh, married mom of three in Texas. I hail from the Lone Star State in the United States. Um, I am mostly take care of my kiddos. I am a, a marketing consultant. I specialize in organic marketing where I mostly work with um, physicians and I help them to create a branding strategy, mostly based in um, organic messaging. So I do a lot of, I find a, and then I also work with mental health companies. Um, I've gotten into working with psychiatrists, plastic surgeons, orthopedic surgeons. Um, basically I act as a translator to translate for the physician um, into layman's terms that everybody can understand and also to get them to, to um, sorry, that's my huge dog in the background. Um, <laughs> what a great journey is. Exactly. He's so strongly about this case. Uh, between Felicity's cats and my dog, it should be a it's great gonna be show. Fun. It's going to be really fun. They're just going to trade back and forth. Um, yeah, but I, so yeah, I work with physicians mostly and help translate uh, pretty in-depth medical information into something that everyone can understand. I love medical research. Um, as Felicity knows, I have weird interests and I gush to her mm -hmm. about viruses and all kinds of things. And so we have yeah. weird conversations, but they're interesting. Yeah. So. And speaking of weird interests, how, take me back to when you first heard about this case, because I remember it obviously happening, um, especially obviously as Australia very quickly became involved and kind of the focus of the search. But I, back in March, 2014, I was sitting on my dad's couch. I'd just, I'd just flown Malaysian back long haul, um, moving back to Australia from overseas. And I was sitting on my dad's couch when this story broke and <clears throat> he said, oh, then they don't lose a whole plane. They'll find it by tomorrow. And it's been eight years. Now, when did you first hear about this case? Do you remember where you were and what interested you about MH370? So one thing that interested me kind of goes back to, I mean, the beginning of my life, really. Um, I have a family member who owns, who is Oh, built an airplane leasing finance company and has and loans um, airplanes to all the major airlines in the whole world. So um, I spent a lot of time with this family member, and their children, um, cousins, and um, they all eventually got their pilot's license. So we would, and they all fly and we would just hear about it all the time. Like these really cool stories about different countries and different airlines. And so it was just an interest of mine. Um, at the time when I heard about this case, we were living with my in-laws for a few months because we were going to move to Texas and my home had sold really quickly. So we were living with them in the interim. And I remember hearing about it and I was hooked. I didn't usually turn on the TV. I didn't usually watch like cable news because, you know, it's not always jam packed with facts. And, and I just, mm -hmm. but I was absolutely hooked. Um, and like you, I thought, and like your dad said, I thought that it would be solved mm -hmm. quite quickly. I mean, how 
it's very unusual for a Boeing 777 to just disappear. Um, well, well, is it true? Because I'll ask a lot of questions in this, obviously, because you know way more than I do, even though I've tried to catch up. <clears throat> because there really hasn't been a lot of media about it, which I'll get into in Australia in recent years. It feels like it just kind of disappeared. But is it true that it's the only Boeing 777 missing in the world? It is. It's actually the only like major jet like yeah. of its size and its class that still remains missing yeah. so i mean there's plenty of smaller planes and, and smaller airliners that have gone missing but but it's the only one like in its class that's missing i mean so. normally within a few months even that i think there was one that they found after five months or something but i mean eight years on it's it's a bit crazy um and there's a lot of obviously theories and speculation about it and as we've talked about at length just so many things that people throw into it that have muddied the waters I guess so kind of just go into before we get into the case what what your main kind of sources are what you how much you've watched I mean I know it's extensive um you've taught me so much about this yeah, absolutely. So um, I there was a there's a preeminent journalist, Ian Higgins uh, yeah. from Australia, who's Australian, and he has kind of been the leading man on this case. Um, he's an investigative journalist of great renown, um, and he has done extensive research on this. So he wrote a book called The Hunt for MH370. I highly recommend it. It's really involved, very tech. I mean, it's really involved. It's a good read and it's not a hard read, but mm -hmm. he does go into great depth about all aspects of the search, the disappearance, and then posits several theories about how it disappeared. He's also clear about which one um, he believes happened and spends most time on that. Um, and then the Australian well, newspaper in Australia, mm -hmm. um, I, they, they did a lot of reporting yeah. initially um, because probably a lot of listeners don't know, but Australia, conducted the search um, for yeah. this plane. And so, yeah, and then a lot of, there's a lot of American journalists that did work on it too. Um, there's a lot of people at the UK. Um, and then I've been, you know, you know, getting on uh, Facebook groups and, and verifying the information, but just kind of putting my ear to the ground on about a lot of different things. And, you, different and you've reached out to a few people uh, related to this this case as well, which we'll we'll get into. Um, Ian Higgins, we will talk about because there's a mystery in itself with Ian Higgins, uh, which we'll kind of get into later. Which is a whole other thing that just there's so many problems with it. Um, but Ian Higgins, I don't know if he's Australian because actually I was watching um, this this year they aired a eight-year anniversary thing on dueling competitor networks, 60 Minutes Australia and Sky News Australia. And Ian Higgins worked a lot on this case with um, someone Australians will know, Peter Stefanovic, who's kind of one half of, I call them the Australian Cuomos. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> Carl is more the the uh, Chris and uh, I guess Peter's the Andrew maybe. And um, Peter... Stefanovic was interviewed about it um, and Ian Higgins as we'll get into has since gone missing um, like I'll just give that away at now um, 
so that if we bring it up, it won't get confusing, if you know what I mean. But the details around his disappearance have pretty much been completely covered up. No one knows where he went missing, how he went missing, uh, or exactly when he went missing. It was around 2021. Is that what we know? Yes, it is seriously so bizarre. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's there's, there's nothing. There's, almost, there's nothing. Almost every comment online is, why are they brushing this under the carpet? It's with the coroner. Why can't we know? I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I've never seen a missing person in Australia that's covered like this. Now, when the Sky News coverage, I watched it again yesterday, the one that came out in March <coughs> had Ian Higgins interviewed on it. And then at the end, it just had a thing that said, Ian Higgins has since gone missing. That's all. And I'm, Ian Higgins was interviewed on it. And he's either American by birth or Canadian because he's got one of the two accents and I can't detect it and I can't seem to find that information. So I just, I was, I just wanted to know more about his history and I couldn't even find that. His LinkedIn is still up. Um, he never really updated it when he was around, um, but we'll get into all that, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I, I guess. Well, just to comment on that, just to add to what you were saying, um, I even looked, because LinkedIn is kind of, a place where I find a lot of information and you know it's odd he he had done he had worked with the Australian for so long and none of his colleagues mention him you know I kind of go and see who he's no. friends with and colleagues are nobody mentions him um and then I did reach out to um Danica Weeks mm -hmm. whose husband was on flight MH370 she wrote back and she just said that she got close to Ian Higgins. He had her in his book, featured her in the book. And she just said, we have no idea either. We don't have any information. They yeah, given coming from a woman who spent years knowing this man, I have a funny feeling, well, we'll get into it later. I, I think maybe he may have taken his own life, but that's just my gut feeling. And, but Sky News was that when they put up the thing that said, He's since went missing. There are no suspicious circumstances. And all I could find, yeah, all I could find was that it said um, it is now with the like New South Wales coroner, which indicates to me that he went missing in the state of New South Wales. He must have been based in Sydney. Um, so I guess we'll talk about him throughout the thing, but I, I liked him. He's got a really kind of objective, but straightforward nature just um I guess you'd know more about him and you've read his own words in the book um but I guess we should start at the beginning so if you want to take it away Marissa uh with whatever you've got all right guys thanks for your patience and um <laughs> you know grant me some grace this is my first yeah my maiden voyage on a podcast. <laughs> um, so what I thought, just to, to preface it, I, I thought that it would be the most helpful to listeners if I went through in a, in a very detailed way the night that it disappeared and the events leading up to it. Yeah. Um, because if you have that foundation, um, kind of the TikTok of that evening, um, when it disappeared on March 8th, 2014, um, it really does form a solid foundation for the rest of it. it it's the matrix that everyone needs for the entire story. Yeah. If you understand that, if that's okay. Yeah. So if we can do that. Um, so basically our story starts um, 
at an airport in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Um, which is near the South China Sea, a country near the South China Sea. And Felicity, if I'm correct, you also discuss Malaysia in depth in episode 55, correct? I do. On the um, Barlow and Chambers episode, I talk pretty extensively about Malaysia. I listened back to it and I did a pretty um, solid deep dive, but it was more from a perspective of what was happening in that case, which was the death penalty. But I did talk quite a lot about the government um, and how the different royal like royal family, I guess, elections work and things like that. So it's worth going back to that. But um, I myself have spent way too much time in Kuala Lumpur Airport and I've been to Kuala Lumpur. Um, but, and I talk about that a little bit on the episode, um, but Kuala Lumpur is a major international airline hub. It's the hub for Malaysia Airlines. If you fly them, the airline always has to go to the hub city as part of a long leg. So say I fly Melbourne to London, I have to go via KL. That's where they you change planes, you refuel. Uh, last time I flew to Thailand in 2018, I flew Malaysian. And this whole thing didn't put me off Malaysian, which I'll get into, put a lot of people off. Um, I think unfairly. <clears throat> Um, and they're an amazing airline. They're one of my favourites. But you always have to go via the hub city. Why are they one of your favourites? Tell us that. Um, I said on the Barlow and Chambers episode, basically, um, I, I love the Asian airlines. I love Qatar's my favourite. I love Cathay Pacific, which a lot of people don't talk about. Um, I love Thai Airways. It's just the whole experience of flying with them from the warm towels that they give you with tongs to wet your face and uh, the higher quality of food. There's a reason that the Asian airlines are always in the top 10 and there's a reason that Qantas is dropping out of the top 100. That's all I'll say. Um, <laughs> but Malaysian just, the, air, the airport's amazing. I've even flown out a lot of times when I lived in Cambodia, I had to fly to KL to connect back to Melbourne and to other cities. It's the nearest airport from um, from Siem Reap in Cambodia. Even the low budget, uh, there's two KL airports. The main one is the one we'll be going to today, but there's also the budget airline one that I used to fly Air Asia, and um, they're really good despite being really cheap. They go to the low budget KL airport, and just everything from uh, hotels in the airport where you can have a nap for you pay per hour and you can have a nap you know if you're there for 15 hours like I was or uh, just the whole the process of an Asian airport is just so seamless if anyone's ever flown through Singapore there's a reason that Changi Airport is the best airport in the world year after year voted the best airport in the world it's it's like an experience all of its own I suppose and I always feel like that translates to the service when you get on a um, Asian aeroplane the captains there it's all very professional they greet you how they look they they look beautiful they're highly professional um it just leaves Qantas British Airways and um airlines like that in the dust really um and I think most people agree with that there's a reason that Qatar Etihad Emirates Thai Singapore uh Malaysian Cathay they're always in the top 10 yeah that's true I think I read that in the uh what's the sky magazine I have no <laughs> idea like, but I know, I know what you mean, yeah. there's a sky magazine and like they'll try to sell you all these weird gadgets but then they'll tell you about like which ones um 
you know, when you stuff. And I think I remember reading that about Singapore air, actually. Um, yeah, that's that brilliant. Um, so give, give us, actually, I think this would be a good way to do it. Just give us a very quick understanding of the current regime, like the, well, when you did the episode, what is the setup of the government like and kind of what are the conditions as sort of the surround sound background to this oh, story? It is on the different. spot now and I only re-listened to myself talk yesterday. I guess it's a, it's a constitutional monarchy, I think, but they, they, I talked about on the episode how they have like an election process where there's a number of different royal families and every few years they elect the royal family that's going to rule. But one of the things that makes Malaysia unique is that it's a Muslim country, which as I've said to you before, going there, you wouldn't even know, at least I didn't, I didn't even know it was a Muslim country when I went there 10 years ago. Um, a lot of women wear headscarves, a lot of women don't, but it, the way that it's different to a place like Saudi Arabia or something like that is that you've got freedom inbuilt into the constitution. You've got freedom of religion. So you are allowed to follow whatever religion you want. Two of my closest friends from uni I've stayed with in Malaysia, uh, they're both Muslim, um, but it's a very cosmopolitan city. She doesn't wear a headscarf. Um, they could opt not to, but if you are a Muslim, you are under a different legal system in the courts where you are under Sharia law. Um, essentially now it's also illegal to be gay there which is my friend um, the male he's gay so he essentially like I talked about on the Bilo and Chambers episode lives a bit of a double life which I experienced both living with him here and living um, staying with him in, in Malaysia they take a pretty hard line approach um, oh. and they also have the death penalty as well for uh, drugs uh, murder but they have pretty hefty penalties for sodomy as well which is another thing that will come into play in this case yes absolutely perfect really quick how would you kind of is there like a sister country it's a burgeoning democracy right I mean it's it's an yeah. ascendant democracy what would you kind of compare it to it doesn't even have to be an Asian country but as far as like its developing economy and its level of development and kind of place in the world economic and democratic landscape where would you say that you'd place it do you think what would you compare it to or are there any kind um, of it's probably less more like Dubai in terms of it it's it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world uh, and it's very the landscape, especially the cityscape at night, it's very glittery. Uh, KL, you've got the Petronas Towers, which are these huge, beautiful towers that kind of tower over the city. Um, I, I guess I would be feel safer just as a Westerner uh, and not afraid to break rules in Malaysia than I would be in Dubai. I, I never want to go to Dubai, the things I know about it. And at some point I'm having a guest on like who runs basically an organisation advocating for people who are locked up for pretty much nothing in Dubai. Um, you can go to bars, you know, shisha bars, normal bars, have a drink. I, I went and drank, you know, had a couple of drinks with my Muslim friends. Um, yeah, like it's, 
there's no religious police or anything. Um, but okay. one second, Marissa, Hi. because Zoom is telling me that we have a less than a minute left, which is ridiculous because we only just started this and it's telling me <laughs> I need to upgrade. So can you hang on and we'll pause it and we'll come back? Yeah, you bet. It's very techy here. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty high tech. Yeah. And we're back. All right. So where were we, Marissa? Okay, so we were going to start with, we kind of just went over a little bit about Malaysia, and we are going to start with the night of the plane's disappearance, sort of a TikTok countdown. Are you going to, can I just ask, um, are you going, at what stage are you going to introduce our captains and co-pilots and all that? So I'm going to do that yeah. after I go through this sort of timeline yeah. chronology. Cool. Um, I'm not, I'm going to introduce him and then like up to the point where they disappear and then I'll, we'll talk about um, cool. captains and then, then we'll go into like the search, um, subsequent search and all that. But I feel like this is such a core Arch core like the, the architecture of this whole like TikTok countdown is yeah. so essential to understanding. Yeah. Like I'm just you know, going with flow. I trust you. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah. Let me know if you think I should do anything else or do switch up the order. So on March 7th, um 2014, Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah. And Captain Barik Abdul Hamid arrived around 10.30 p.m. at Kuala Lumpur's um, airport. And it was a beautiful evening. Um, they were getting ready to fly to Beijing, which is a route, Kuala Lumpur to Beijing is a route they uh, flew, especially Captain Shah, all the time. Um, it, it was one of Malaysia Airlines kind of core core flights um, and popular core flights um, and it was a big money maker for them. So he arrived about 1030 um, and when he got there they gave him the electronic you know flight information where he could review kind of weather patterns, what was going on, just kind of a printout that he can review and make adjustments and prepare for whatever eventuality comes up. So about 1226, he and um, Marik Abdul Hamid, who is the first officer on the flight. And just of note, um, Captain Zahari Shah is 53 years old and he has years of, about 30 years of experience flying for Malaysia Airlines. He was born to fly. Um, he not only has wanted to be a pilot since he was a little boy growing up in Penang, um, a smaller town in Malaysia, but he, when he's not flying, he has, um, sorry, that was my seven-year-old son getting excited about something downstairs. Um, he, when he's not flying, he'll fly remote control airplanes, and then he's a member of like a hang, um, a, a parachuting, parachuting company and a parachuting light club, and he so he's always aviating. He's always flying. He always just wants to be off the ground. And he's um, also like a bit of a Mr. Fix-It because his YouTube is still up and it's only got a few uh, videos on it. But on them, he's their guides to how to fix things like air conditioners. And um, I was actually really interested watching them, not the content of them, but the way he talks, he explains things so well. Um, I think 
as we'll get into, people automatically have a bad perception of uh, Captain Shah. Uh, but as a lot of people go into bat for him, especially in Malaysia with his family and friends, um, he had a really good way of explaining things. He, he speaks, I want to make it clear that when, which I'm sure you will, uh, when pilots speak to control towers and things, generally they speak English, um, which they talk about a lot on air crash investigation. Sometimes air crashes have been caused by like a breakdown language barriers. Um, he speaks perfect English, which a lot of Malaysians do. And he he just has like kind of a wide range of interest. He looks like he he's good with his hands fixing things. Um, and he was also, he'd flown what was it, 18,000 hours as a captain? Yes, exactly. He has, he's clocked about 18,000 hours and the first officer, Farik, has done about 2,700. Um, and actually this night is um, first officer, Abdul Hamid, it is his final training flight on the Boeing 777 before yeah. he kind of does his like pass it all off flight and then he's good to be you know you're a full-fledged pilot and would be authorized at that point to fly and um, the Boeing 777 as part of the Malaysia um, Airlines team and Captain Shaw you're right he was good with his hands he was good at explaining things um, he was a very excellent trainer um, and he really was in the upper echelons of Malaysia Airlines. He was a premier pilot, very trustworthy, very dependable. Um, and he was this tonight giving um, first officer kind of his final training. Yeah. A lot of um, experts talked about that. He was likely overseeing him. And he also, um, he often did that with the younger pilots. Can I ask, had they flown together before? Yes. I, they, I was looking for that and they didn't, they had said, yes, they had, um, but he had been, I guess how they do it is they rotate trainers. Like you kind of just train yeah. um, with whatever senior pilot is credentialed to be a trainer. So yes, they had. Um, and and yeah, apparently and he was Shah, very popular. Captain Shah had a pretty much pristine record as they put it. He, he never had really acted up at work. Um, he was a pretty calm guy under pressure. He was, yep. Yeah pretty affable yeah um, yeah right he wasn't prone to explosive outbursts or you know he wasn't difficult just affable pretty easygoing had this kind of nice you know amiable look about him um people liked him a very popular trainer um, he's got a he, nice he's actually got a really nice face and a really nice way of talking um a lot of people just automatically these days you know want to pick out the worst because of the general consensus that he had something to do with it but uh, just on face value, you know, um, and also when they boarded the plane, which I'm sure you might bring up, um, there is footage of them walking through the metal detectors and uh, they put their bags through as, you know, the flight crew have to do and they get patted down, which is standard. And you see that um, captain, the first officer walks in behind Captain Shah and uh, it's all very normal, um, just their body language, everything. Yes, exactly. They've done some, you know, analysis of that yeah. and they don't notice anything different. They don't notice, you know, that he's tense or jittery or, and also people that interacted with him that evening didn't notice anything as he looked over his flight plan and, and any of that. So there were no red flags. There was no warning. No. Um, before he gets on the plane, 
he orders two hours extra, two hours extra's worth of contingency fuel. And a lot of pilots will order some contingency fluid. I didn't realize that pilots were the ones that order the fuel, but he, he did, they do. And he ordered what amounted to about two hours extra, which is kind of unusual because looking back, nobody questioned it at the time. Nobody said anything. They're just like, okay, whatever you say. And they fill it up. Um, well, well, can I, um, just ask Go ahead. Sure. the French uh, guy who lost his whole family on this flight uh, that I've watched interviewed there was an interview with him where he found out years later about this fact and was that he was talking about um, an extra uh, I don't know how much it was I not like it was a couple hundred pounds of cargo uh, that was added at the last minute to the manifest was that the uh was that the fuel or so yes um I'm not well and I'm not entirely sure I saw that on a clip and then really couldn't find any more corroborating information but they did in Ian Higgins book he did talk about how when you add he did add quite a bit more fuel which obviously makes the plane heavier and so it slows you down and so it makes you kind of have to balance those factors. If you're trying to get somewhere faster, you want extra contingency fuel. You have yeah. to balance with the fact that it makes the plane heavier. So I want to dig into that more. But um, yeah, he did add quite a bit extra fuel. And it was out of character for him. Um, and for this route, it didn't really make sense. But no one questioned it. Um, yeah. You know, it's a text that fill it up. So that's kind of an interesting piece of information to file away. So about 1226, uh, the, it was, like I said, very hot and humid. Um, I think it was a moonless night um, in Kuala Lumpur. And both of them, both the pilot and first officer are sitting on the plane going through their pre-flight checklist. Everything is normal. Um, they are on the tarmac ready to go. And at about, this was 1226. So they push back, they request you know, can we're ready for takeoff? Can we push back? That was granted um, at 1241. So this is 1241 a.m. on March 8th. Mm. Um, just so everyone knows, 2014. Um, at 1241, it's ready to fly again, perfect weather, ideal conditions, and it's set to be about a six and a half hour flight over Vietnam into Beijing. Yep. So um, at about, let's see. Okay, so at 119, so the plane takes off, okay? And as you you know, anybody who's been on the plane knows that the plane climbs for a bit of time until it reaches its optimal altitude, which in this case was uh, 3,500 feet. So about 119, um, it it reached its um, cruising altitude at 3,500 feet. And when... um, how it works is when you are flying in, in the plane, they have autonomous zones. They sort of have these zones of governance where each area is kind of cordoned off and they sort of divide up, you know, the, the earth basically into zones um, that are assigned to certain control towers. So he's leaving, he's leaving, um, 
Malaysian is. Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I my dog. <laughs> Barking again. I was like, please don't bark. Please don't. <laughs> sorry, distracted me. <laughs> so he's leaving Malaysia. He's leaving um, Kuala Lumpur. And what they tell him is they say, you know, he, he checks in and he says, okay, I've reached cruising altitude. And what's interesting um, in this, this journalist, um, his name is William Longoisha, and he has reported extensively on it. He's talking about when he flew, um, when he flew and he said, I've, okay, I've reached 3,500 feet. He said that that was actually unusual. Yes. It was unusual, not only for him, but for just a pilot to announce when they've reached a cruising altitude, usually to the air traffic controllers, they'll only say when they have left a certain yeah. altitude. So I did you read? I, yes, I saw this is a big thing um, that I wasn't aware of until I was kind of brushing up on it. And I've seen quite a lot of pilots talk about it. Not only that, I can't remember the exact quote. He says something and then he says 350. He he says it twice, which is doubly weird. Um, they don't know whether it was him and then someone else saying it or whether or not he was repeating something twice. But he essentially says it's seven minutes apart. Um, is that right? And he he basically repeats the same thing twice where it would be weird to say it even once, let alone twice. Exactly. That, yeah. And that was... That was odd, and those were things that only in retrospect you would think, huh? Um, it can, it can. I don't know because I'm not a pilot, but from a mindset kind of point of view, when you're nervous about something, or you know, I'm sure you've noticed this. You can repeat things, you can mm -hmm. kind of stutter, you can do things that are a little bit out, abnormal because it's a compensatory, you know, way to deal with things. You just, it's a compensation. So I've got the exact he quote here just to at 12.50, uh, he radios ATC Lumpur Control um, and he says Malaysian 370, climb flight level 350. And then at 107, he said, that's sorry, that's the air traffic control tower. At 107, he says R7370, maintaining level 350. And then at 119, he says it again, uh, which is really weird. Yeah, it is. It's it's weird. It's superfluous and it's just not, you know, their protocol. Um the these reporting in and reporting back to air traffic control is pretty internationalized. Um, there are fairly set protocols yes. for how, I mean, there's a, a universal language of aviation, which is English, and there's pretty set protocols. And that's how, you know, you're able to, to manage, you know, flying globally and interchanging with all these different countries. And I didn't realize how regulated it was and how, um, you know, formulated it was and how standardized, I guess is the word I was looking for. So at about, you know, so he does say this, like Felicity says, he gets there. And then um, minutes later, they come on and they basically Kuala Lumpur tell the air traffic control Kuala Lumpur tells him, okay, so we're going to be handing you off to Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. That's going to be your next check-in. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as we, you know, hang, hang up with you, basically that you need to contact them mm -hmm. and, and yet we're handing you off. So 
they say contact Ho Chi Minh and then they say good night. And then Captain Zahari Shah says back very famously, good night, Malaysia 370. Yes, and there's been a lot read into that in terms of uh, was that him, who it was. I mean, the early recording, I mean, the early reporting was that it was the captain. Um, but later on, Malaysia Airlines themselves early on would say it was uh, the first officer. And then friends of Captain Shah's would later say that it definitely was him and then other friends would say it wasn't him. Uh, I do you think it was him? I do because... So do I, yeah. I do, and, and it was protocol, I guess. So that's what I found because I thought, you know, I bet that's protocol. And I read, yes, it is, um, that the ranking officer is supposed to handle communications and also when you listen to all their communications and there's been a lot of analysis of them and stress tests and things uh Farik and Zahari had two different voices and one of them would draw out their sentences with uh and one of them would not um they it was quite like kind of distinct the two voices um some people may argue that they're not I don't know but Anyway. Exactly. You'll you have to turn um you'll have to post that uh that voice analysis that you sent that was kind of interesting and it's yeah. kind of a little bit chilling to hear the goodnight Malaysia 370. Yeah. It's just very poignant and uh, iconic now. So what happened was he so this is about like 119, right? He's instructed to call Ho Chi Minh, but he didn't call Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> so after that point, that is the last communication that anyone ever received from MH Flight 370. Yeah. So the rule is in international rules of aviation that if you are in air traffic control and you are expecting um, a transmission, you're expecting um, the pilot to connect with you and check in, that if they do not do so within five minutes of the expected check-in time, that you are supposed to notify authorities yeah. um, immediately. So we will take just a second to talk about the tracking technology that was on board this plane and why it's significant. Yeah. So uh, this uh, plane was was fitted with a transponder and ACARS and and then some other tracking that we'll discuss in a little bit later time. But transponder is what we call secondary radar. And it sends information about, sends aircraft height, speed, flight number, and destination. And it should never, ever, ever be turned off. Yeah. Um, and I, I read, um, I am not sure if this has been completely corroborated or validated yet, um, but it seemed pretty relevant. But it was, um, it talked about how pilots don't actually, they're not actually taught to turn off a transponder. Yeah. Um, it's something that's like always supposed to be on. It's not like a little switch in, you know, their controls where you just go oh, transponder off. It's yeah. something that a technician um, or someone with that job, maintenance or whatever, would actually have to show you how to do. Um, and so, all I could find really was that um, it did get it did get turned off, and we're going to talk about that. But I just wanted everyone to know that it is not something that 
just gets flipped on and off like the seatbelt yes. light or at all. We talk about certain things. Um, Marissa, like, um, was telling me about as we talk about Charles later with the simulator that he had at home. The pilots, she told me, you know, aren't taught to crash in a simulator because it can kind of scramble their brains a little bit and you don't want to do that. And this is another thing um, that I've actually heard on another case um, that's unrelated to this about that particular thing. But you've got to wonder whether Shah would have just known after after decades flying, would he know how, how to manually switch it off, I suppose. Exactly. Yes. So you have to be, yeah, you have to be taught. It's not part of it. But also as someone commented online, which is a really good point that I saw, why in this day and age, A, do we not have black boxes going to a cloud server? Why are they still manually in the black box that you can't find in this case? Like man goes to the moon, but they can't send black box to a cloud so that it's protected if the plane goes missing. And the other thing they had was, in this day and age, why is it possible for one person to switch off something so pivotal to a plane's operation? It just shouldn't be, it just shouldn't be possible. It's like you shouldn't, the a pilot shouldn't be able to lock a door the way that I read that you can lock a door so that even if you're pressing on the outside the keypad to get in like the flight crew can, that there's an overriding system where they can just do this override thing that lasts for 30 minutes. So no matter how many times you put the keys into the keypad, the door won't open. In this day and age, why do all those things exist? I have wondered those same exact things. I'm like, wait, so they it can't like upload, you know, we have iCloud. Like it can't, we can't yeah. upload to a cloud. Like we, and even I understand that they don't want it to be penetrable to, yeah. you know, geopolitical foes or terrorism or whatever I get that but they're just it seems like there is some way where like are we really relying on this like Honeywell box like yeah it's funny I agree and we will talk more about the pilot's um door and I learned some things about that what you just said um related to German air wings um, with Andreas recent pilot uh suicide so we're going to talk about that so um I'm going to read this really quick, and this is by um, William Longawasha in The Atlantic, because I think it's important technical information. So it's important to understand the difference between primary radar and secondary radar. Primary radar relies on simple raw pings off objects in the sky. And so that would be if you like militaries use it all the time. Um, if they are tracking enemy planes or they're tracking their own planes, they're able to, you know, see the enemy coming and track things that way. Air traffic control systems use what is known as secondary radar. And this is dependent on a transponder signal that is transmitted by each plane and contains richer information than just your basic primary radar. So for instance, um, it will, it sends the plane's identity and altitude. um, And then a lot of other information, you know, height, speed, flight number, like I said. So if, for instance, that if someone switches off the transponder in this instance, in this case, we know where the plane went after that because um, it it switched to military radar, like they were able to look using military radar. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Which is primary. 
So yeah. they were relying on secondary with their transponder. Yeah. But all of a sudden, right after Captain Shaw uttered goodnight Malaysia 370, the transponder signal so his little plane on the air traffic controller you know screen mm -hmm. just disappears just yeah. is gone just vanishes yeah and so he had just crossed into um <coughs> excuse me vietnamese airspace and when you cross into another airspace you were supposed to check in it's just like traveling to different countries you show your passport you go through customs and he crossed into Vietnamese airspace and they had been tracking him, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> dog coughing kids, all that good stuff. Um, they had been, Vietnamese had been tracking him too because they were anticipating his arrival. Yeah. Well, his symbol dropped off their radar as well. And they're like, oh, whatever. Um, they yeah. were busy helping other planes. Um, they were, yeah, they were just distracted. And they just kind of, the pilot's supposed to contact them. Yeah. And so you're just kind of waiting for that to happen. Right. And when this, this is kind of important, this idea of like constant partial attention or sort of, um, oh, well, I thought they had it and I thought they had it. It's kind of like, I mean, this happens as a parent all the time. My husband and I will go to like a party or a pool party or something. And I kind of relax or I don't surveil my kids the same because I think, oh, he's got them and he yeah. kind of sees the same. So it's, it, this is kind of like that. Um, if you guys can remember that, this is sort of important because it's kind of what happened between Ho Chi Minh and um, Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. So right after he, like I said, crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol representing the, its transponder drops from the screens of Malaysia air traffic control. Yeah. And then 30 seconds later, the entire airplane disappeared from secondary radar. So at this time, it's 1.21 a.m. They have been in the air for 39 minutes. Okay. And, you know, they were super busy in Kuala Lumpur, too. And they just didn't really make a lot of hay out of a plane disappearing from the radar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which I understand because I have yeah. ADHD <laughs> and I don't think I've noticed either. <laughs> Like, Although yeah. in traffic control, it has a really high suicide rate. Um, I read once. Um, it's one of the most high pressure jobs in the entire world. Oh, really? High suicide what? rate. Yeah, I, I read that once. It's like just the, the sheer pressure of being responsible. You can't have an off day ever um, being an air traffic controller. You can't just rock up to work tired or something and decide to slack off. No, you, and you'd have to have a very specific, like, very advanced, like, executive functioning to really manage all these things at once and prioritize. Like, it just blows my mind how people can do that job. Yeah. So I have a lot of sympathy for this situation. Um, yeah. Okay, so they've been in the air 40 minutes. The time is 1.21 a.m., okay? Um, so when the controller in Kuala Lumpur noticed that... MH370 had disappeared off their radar. Um, he just kind of assumed that the airplane was in the hands of Ho Chi Minh yeah. and just kind of out beyond his range. So he's like, oh, it disappeared, but they're, it, they're already in Vietnamese airspace and they're supposed to just be talking to Ho Chi Minh and it's not my issue anymore. Yeah. So does that make sense so far? Like yeah. that timeline and everything. Okay. So meanwhile, the Vietnamese are watching and waiting for MH370 to call them. And they see MH370 cross into their airspace and then just disappear 
from radar. So I guess they just kind of misunderstood. It's, it's said that they misunderstood this kind of formal agreement um, that Ho Chi Minh was supposed to inform Kuala Lumpur immediately if an airplane that had been handed off was more than five minutes late checking in. Yeah. So that was sort of their understanding. They just kind of didn't realize that. That was like their formal arrangement with Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, I saw, I saw so, an but uh, like say on an on the sky news documentary i watched for the eighth anniversary like this is the point where if this happened in the united states they'd be scrambling fighter jets yes i heard that yes i heard that and too. that's actually it's Absolutely. true at some point they actually should have as the as you'll get into as it as it loops around and crosses back over um Malaysia the mainland and goes the opposite way and then starts going up the Andaman Sea towards India almost uh at that point they should have been doing something like that but I'm sure you'll get into that so continue exactly yes exactly and that is a very good point because that is that's our job and that's the timeline that they're supposed to work on so this whole time instead of five minutes it was 18 minutes um, that had passed since there was the disappearance from the radar screens. And then from that time until about 2.30 a.m., there was kind of this flurry of activity and just kind of confusion and incompetence. And they're like, oh, wait, wasn't that supposed, you know, oh, the other guy had it. No, we had it. That yeah. whole thing. Oh, he's watching them. No, they're watching. It's them. only 239 people. It's right. It's not. Yeah, it's just 2.39. I mean, I'm sure the other guys got them, right? Yeah. So it's fine. Um, so, okay. So they tried at this point about, it had been, yeah, it had been quite a bit of time. So this is 18 minutes after, after they were handed off and um, they were supposed to have contacted uh, Kuala Lumpur after five, but it had been 18 minutes. So they start trying to contact the plane. Um, no one answers, right? Like, come in and make sure 70. Um, they tried calling, making two satellite phone calls. Um, they tried all these different frequencies of radio to try and get a hold of them. They also tried calling other planes, other pilots in the area to try and like triangulate it where, you know, they'd call that pilot and that pilot would try and contact um, MH370 directly. They tried everything. They could not get anyone to pick up. So finally, um, at about 2.30 a.m., they still could not contact the plane, um, and they ended up calling Kuala Lumpur's Aer excuse me, Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Center, um, which should have been notified within an hour if you can't contact a plane. Yeah. Um, so after and eventually four more hours elapsed um, before an emergency response was finally. Which is when yeah. the plane should have been landing in Beijing. And, and by then, the media had the story before the families did because Danica, she ended up finding out through the media. Which was horrifying. Like, sorry remember that, that call? Yeah. It was so bad. It was like, I'm, I... I want to pull it up, but I pretty much remember it. It was like, hello, may I speak with Paul? Yeah. And that's her husband. And she says, oh, he's not here, right? Like he's actually on a flight to China. And they go, and, haven't and you heard? Yes. Yeah. And I thought that was so bizarre. Why would they say, hey, is Paul there? Like what? It just sounded Why like- Why would you ask for a guy that you knew 
It, it, yeah, it's it's crazy. This is what leads to conspiracies, Marissa. When journalists do insane shit like this, it makes me mad. I know it makes you mad as well. But um, by this point, the world media is breaking because we were a few hours ahead in Australia, and I was sitting on the couch at about ten o'clock in the morning. So the live feed is coming in of the Chinese families at the other end in Beijing, all crying at the airport and wailing which I'm sure you remember that footage yes. and they've been incredibly vocal trying to get answers and protesting and really been smacked down left, right and center trying to get answers and all kind of uh, gathering at Beijing airport, hoping as um, Peter Stefanovic asked the dumbest question I've ever heard an Australian journalist ask, which is a big feat because they do as everyone on the sky news video commented is there a dumber question he could have asked? He said when he was interviewing a Malaysian, the head of Malaysia Airlines for the eighth anniversary this year in March, he said to him, I guess at this point you were just waiting for the plane to land in Beijing or hoping it would. What, <laughs> what the fuck is the guy going to say? No, oh I hope it crashed into the fucking... Like, it's just a dumb... Like, like, I don't know. I, I mean, I could go either way, right? Peter Stefanovic's face when it came out of his mouth, I think he was oh like, that God. was the dumbest question I've ever asked in my life. But Probably so, him that called Danica. He's like, hey, is Paul there? It probably was saying. Peter Stefanovic. <laughs> Dude, I swear, the Stefanovics are responsible for everything in this country, trust me. But so they, it hasn't landed and it's 6, what, 6, 6.30 in the morning in local time, Beijing? Yes, exactly. So it's about 6.30 a.m. And... So the director of like Malaysia's air traffic safety bureau, um, he, this is like the first time in years that he's ever had his phone be dead and not charged. Um, he was coming home from like a family wedding. So he goes to bed mm. and he wakes up and his phone's dead and he charges it, doesn't turn it on, wakes up in the morning and he turns on his phone and I mean, he's got like 1700 messages like where yeah. are you what's going on <laughs> like you know mayday mayday like guess what oh and um we have you know we have this problem so it was uh they didn't even summon any kind of response until 6 32 a.m okay um so at this moment i'm gonna also reference uh, william longalicious um article too because he does such a great job of um laying out this initial uh, disappearance um just kind of summarize but he they immediately okay so i'm going to talk about where the plane went now so everyone's clear like on the timeline it disappears okay it's off the radar no one knows where it is okay um and so they're just panicking they're trying to get a hold and and on in ian higgins book um i think you could probably find it online but there is the voice transcript there's the voice um, recording of the communication between Ho Chi Minh and Kuala Lumpur. And they're pretty just laissez-faire about it for a while. Like, hey, have you seen them? No, I haven't seen them. You know, and it just goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, so anyway, so let's talk about- For people who are scared of flying, this is not helping. Right, exactly. Despite, yeah. I mean, we don't want the proportionality <laughs> to yeah. get all screwed up but you know yeah. millions yeah. of flights a year and everything's fine but this yeah. is a very situation. doesn't normally go like this um okay so they the plane should have landed in beijing about 6 30 um and they didn't really know what to say to 
the passengers um, because at this point they had just barely sounded the alarm, you know, and said, hey, we need search and rescue. So what they did on the arrival screen in the Beijing airport, it just said like delayed. Yeah. Right. Um, And they just kind of started telling people this is a highly criticized their response in the very beginning, um, understandably, but they just kind of said like, yeah, we're kind of having trouble finding the plane. Um, so, you know, just hang out, um, just a very vague sort of having trouble finding the plane, which is terrible. Right. I mean, I just really think about the carnage, the emotional carnage of this situation. And and I don't know, what would you think? What would you do if you were told that like, sorry, we're, we're having finding it and you just got to the airport I don't even know what I would do well the French guy who lost his wife son and daughter on this who I just when I when I saw him interviewed and it came up he lost his whole family I I literally went out loud like I just couldn't believe it he was flying from Paris to Beijing he'd been in Paris on business they were living in Beijing to meet his family and when he got off the plane that he was on from Paris a official came and stopped him and said um, you have to come with us. Uh, we've lost your family's plane. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're just going to take a break because we have to recap. And we're back. So where were we? Okay. We are talking about military radar. So yeah. Going back to 1.22 a.m., we remember that at 1.21, the transponder was turned off and everything disappeared. So Thailand, um, Thai military is also tracking the plane signal through primary radar. It's just, you know, they're monitoring their skies, they're on watch like a normal military, and they pick up the plane's signal. Yeah. But then it disappears at 122. Um, this is a Royal Thai Air Force spokesman um, told CNN, and I'm using CNN's timeline because it's actually pretty good. Normally, I'm not a huge fan of CNN. So 128 a.m., this is 128, um, Thai radar picks up unknown aircraft. So they knew before that it was um, MH370, but a Thai radar station in southern in a southern province picks up an unknown aircraft flying in a direction opposite to what flight 370 had been traveling yeah um, this is yeah a thai royal air force told cnn so plane appears to change course from 121 a.m to 128 a.m um, because it was on thai radar as 370 it disappears and then all of a sudden they detect like this different plane it was the same plane but they didn't no. So what's really crazy about this is they have since proved that the plane did take change direction. And um, I will send Felicity a map to post so that you can kind of look at the flight pattern, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but playback of Malaysian military radar, because they were also tracking the plane, it showed that MH, and this was released at a later time, but it showed that MH370 turned right, but then began making an unexpected long left turn at 273 degrees, yeah. which is really dramatic. Now, it's important to note that this turn was so extreme um, that it could not have been executed by an autopilot system. 
Yeah. It was way too abrupt. So that's a really important component um, for those that kind of, you know, believe that, that this was unpiloted or that it was a ghost flight from the very beginning. Um, this is not part of the autopilot <laughs> configuration. Yes. And also, if people can't picture it, the route they're meant to be going from Malaysia to Beijing is pretty much like northeast uh, from Malaysia right up. And the way that he goes is he starts, he kind of hits that north stride once he crosses the mainland of Malaysia. And then he essentially goes, doubles back and starts going the complete other way and starts going west out towards the Andaman Sea, which is kind of near the Bay of Bengal. Like he he goes up that way, which I'm, I'm sure you'll get into. But yeah, as Marissa says, it's just, it's not possible to pull a manoeuvre like this. If he was, say, unconscious and everyone on the flight was unconscious, this isn't an autopilot situation. Exactly. And then another thing about that is that you can only make a turn like this if you're a very experienced pilot. It's not yeah. even if you, not even every pilot can make a turn like this, especially a plane this big. This is a Boeing 777. This is a jumbo jet. Um, and it, only an experienced pilot um, can make this. So this is another reason why they were very convinced that Captain Shaw was driving, was piloting this part of the plane. Um, he was initially, but they insist that he still was at this point. Um, so about 1.30 a.m., so that was from about 1.21 a.m. to 1.28 a.m. when this huge directional change happened. About 1.30 a.m., civilian radar loses contact with the plane. So Malaysian air traffic controllers are just outside Kuala Lumpur, and they lose contact with the plane um, over the Gulf of Thailand between Malaysia and Vietnam at coordinate. Um, it gives the coordinates, but you don't need those. So Malaysia is tracking it. They lose they lose contact with the plane. And then at 1.37 a.m., the expected ACARS transmission does not happen. So ACARS is an, a system, you know, that we talked about that um, reports height, you know, height, speed, yeah. um, trajectory, all of that. And it's a form of secondary radar because it's transmitted from the plane to a reception point um, in air traffic control. Um, and they these transmissions happen a half hour, uh, are supposed to happen every half hour. Right. So at 137 was the next expected A cars. The other one was at 107. And uh, it didn't. So mm -hmm. they were just, well, okay, didn't happen. Um, so that, that we know for a fact that ACARS did stop communicating sometime between 107 and 137 a.m. Um, it's a really, this is a really important event. Uh, this is a seminal moment because turning off ACARS, as we talked earlier, um, it takes know-how. Mm -hmm. um, and Richard Quest, who is an aviation expert from the UK, and he was interviewed extensively um, over the years on this tragedy. Um, he said that it does take know-how. And if the flight were hijacked um, or a target of terrorism, cutting off ACARS would be a strategic move. The system reports to satellites anything being done to the aircraft, was yeah. said. And the average, the average hijacker wouldn't even know how to do it. <clears throat> Exactly. So yeah, even, I mean, and even like the hijackers who 
who executed 9-11 terrorist attack. Like they weren't sophisticated. They they learned how to pilot the plane to the extent that they needed to get it off the ground and, and run it in. But that takes a lot of training, a lot of know-how. Now, um, can okay. I just ask, was there a flight engineer on this flight as part of the crew? Because a they, lot of flights have a flight engineer. They did not mention one. I have never, you know, I didn't no. ask that question I specifically, did. but never heard one mentioned my takeaway from everything I've read was that this particular flight didn't have one a a lot of flights have a flight engineer sitting in like the in the jump seat or in the third seat in the cockpit uh but not this particular one yeah you're right and that's a really good point that I just didn't you know didn't realize that like that was missing um and they didn't because that would have probably come into play in a significant way had they had one so at 2.15 a.m., okay, so 1.37 a.m., the ACARS transmission did not happen. Um, and then at 2.15 a.m., uh, there was another military radar detection. So according to, and this is again um, on the CNN timeline, this is a great article. According to a Malaysian Air Force official, military radar tracked the plane as it passed over the small, small island of Palau Parek in the Strait of Malacca. So it has turned, taken a very hard left, and it's now going over the peninsula of Malaysia. It's now going over the mainland instead of heading toward Beijing, which is northwest or northeast, you're right. Um, Military radar showed that it flew in a westerly direction back over the Malay Peninsula and this was the last time any civilian or military radar is known to have tracked the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna stop here to just say that they did not actually tell, uh, they did not actually release that they had been tracking this plane via military radar for a few weeks, Yeah, which is disappointing <laughs> because, yeah, you know. So pretty much anything that happens beyond this point is purely based on expert opinion, speculation, and as we'll get into it, amateur, maybe um, ham radio operators uh, who could hold the key to it. But just if you're wondering how Australia comes into this, uh, pretty much it's a almost exactly south drop from the last time the military radar picks it up. Is that right? Um, yes. I mean, it's, it's like very... Yeah, abrupt south. Yeah, like almost a very linear southern, right at right. the bottom, pretty much nineteen hundred kilometers from the coast of Perth or something. But we'll get into all that. Yeah, exactly. But you're right. That that's an important because you have to kind of picture it in your head in order to wrap your head around the story. So, um, so Richard Quest, you know, this expert that I quoted earlier, um, they he said that the Military, the Malaysian military um, did hand over its raw radar data to US and British officials, apparently setting aside concerns about any sensitive military intelligence um, after a little while. So, and he said that it was a huge development in the case because when you have a military, you don't really want want the world to know how good your radar is. You don't really want them to down the specs. So, um, and they, and we don't really know a whole lot about the Malaysian military and experts have cited this as like kind of one of the issues, um, like a big missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So Malaysia at 2.40 AM, this uh, 2.15, it was when 
it disappeared from radar completely. That was the last had anyone had ever seen of it. At 2.40 a.m., Malaysia Airlines learns that the plane is missing um, off the radar. So Malaysia air tra traffic controllers told Malaysia Airlines at about 2.40 a.m. that the flight, that flight 370 was missing from radar. So that was kind of the, yeah, seminal moment where, okay, we're gonna call kind of a five alarm, our alarm fire and we're gonna code and we're gonna begin um, gathering the troops to, to look for this plane and dig into this. Um, for, for about an hour after 2.40, um, they do kind of a preliminary search. So, and what that means is they started collecting like every communication in the area that was possible to try and locate this plane. Um, they contacted other air traffic controllers all over. Uh, they, you know, in the South and Asia, in the South Seas and all over Asia and the Malay Peninsula and everywhere else. They just contacted every other place um, and they really couldn't find any other information. No, we haven't seen them. Uh, we don't know anything. At 3.45, they issue like a code red alert that the plane was just gone and missing from radar and they could not, and despite their best efforts, they could not contact, um, they could not get in contact. So a code red in this situation, um, this is what it means. It, when a code red is called, it declares that a crisis requires immediate deployment of emergency response plans. Um, and again, it even took like another hour to issue the alert because they were continuing to scavenge for other sources and air traffic control areas that might have seen the plane or that might have any hint as to what could have happened. Mm -hmm. um, they, again, they kept trying to call the plane via satellite um, and via asking other planes to try and contact MH370 directly. Um, so yeah, code red, immediate emergency. 6.30 a.m. should have arrived in Beijing, but they still let people wait, wait like an hour. They said delayed. Um, and they kind of used this as an opportunity to sort of scramble their response um, because, you know, people expect delays to an extent, especially now, and an hour really isn't cause for alarm. I'm sure you can attest to that, Felicity, with as much as you mm -hmm. travel. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, totally. I remember the footage of all of them waiting and then it, the panic kind of set in because I, I feel that they felt that they were being lied to pretty early on, uh, people who were waiting for them, um, you know, because I remember thinking, why are they all, it's only been like two hours, like why are they all panicking? But I think that we're kind of got around pretty quickly. I think they had a pretty bad feeling. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Well, and also they were very behind in their response. Like, so for all I can find it, a lot of this and like declaring a code red and calling around and gathering, you know, trying to find it, all these means to find it, they, that was supposed to take place in a much more accelerated way. And it was supposed to take place a lot faster. So they should have been ahead of the game. Um, they should have been at, at the point where they could tell the passengers right on time when it when wasn't going to show up or earlier before they got to the airport. So they were just behind in the emergency response process. Um, and I think, you know, people were rushing around and trying to like make phone calls and they were still finishing the process. And I think that people could detect that like something's really 
kicked off here. You know, they weren't prepared and armed with a response when people arrived. At what point did they hold the first press conference? Because I do remember that. Was that within hours of it meant to have been like arriving? So it was in about an hour after, so it was about 7.30, which is about an hour after scheduled arrival. Um, this They made a public announcement of the disappearance um, and they first announced it on Facebook, which is kind of interesting. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't think to go to Facebook first to, no. to find out mean, about my loved one. Like Jerry Lines is trying to keep up you know right exactly they're like you know it's social media presence and like we we posted it as far as it wasn't instagram or something but i guess facebook was a bigger deal then it since has you know declined somewhat so at 8 11 we this okay 8 11 um we find out that a satellite tracked the plane at 8 a.m at 8, 11 a.m., which was about seven hours after takeoff. And we know this now to be um, in Marsat, which is a, a British firm that provided um, satellite data tracking um, for their clients like Boeing and um, you know about the health of the plane. Um, but they he didn't specify what kind of satellite or, or tracking system that wasn't at the forefront of people's minds and most people do not know about like this type of tracking it's not something that's in the public consciousness so but can um, they confirm that it was mh370 uh yes they could because it does send back like the um a flight id number um and they track it on behalf of like boeing or um you know don't think your government's following you if the transponder fails you got the military radar and when that fails you got the satellite radar so they know where they know where you are exactly but this provides an extremely limited amount of it's not really supposed to track you it's not supposed to be like radar so this satellite data um it's something it's a service that is provided for the manufacturer of the airplane and a private company in marsat is the one that has these way stations these satellite way stations so a satellite will send a message to it like ping the plane basically and then which sends a message to like way stations and information stations and it's a very limited amount of data it's kind of about like the in-flight entertainment and some like ancillary systems on the plane, auxiliary systems on the plane. Um, But it does provide like basic data about how the plane is traveling and where they are. Um, But in a very like, what's that? So where was it? So that they just know at this point, they don't know the location. that's not what it uh, tracks, but they just know that the sat that it communicated with the plane, like it sent like a handshake, is what they call it. Right. So right. just kind of so like a little, hey, I'm here, but no other information. So it, so so, it's, so it's still flying. Yes. Okay. So they know it's not in the water yet, but these pings, these little handshakes, they know the last one occurred at eight eleven. AM. But at the time, they didn't tell the family, they didn't provide details on the satellite tracker and what kind it was. Um, but 
I just want to, I just want to quickly just to reinforce how much can we go back to how much fuel the plane had when it took off total so it had what eight hours of fuel and then he added an extra two and we're going into eight hours now yep yes that's correct so at some point based on that you're expecting this plane to run out of fuel exactly so the total flight time from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, I think was about seven hours. Um, and then he added an extra two hours of contingency fuel. So and, you know, it depends happen. on your speed and, and whatever, and altitude, um, how long that fuel is going to last. You can burn it up faster. You can burn it up slower. But True. he did have roughly two hours. And there's one so, thing I saw that's kind of say, you don't know whether he turned off one of the engines to preserve fuel to give him more uh more distance but i mean as the satellite's picking this up at eight o'clock in the morning if you're going off the fact that they'll run out of fuel if it's using it at a normal rate you're expecting this plane to be crashing it in within the next hour yes exactly so they did that's really kind of all they knew at 8 11 um that actually sort of fits in with the timeline the amount of fuel that he had um that that they had um that 811 they got kind of their, their last ping their last handshake um and then it's likely that but these handshakes they weren't complete handshakes um they weren't complete like the message didn't permeate in the same way that it normally does with a healthy plane that's just flying um they noticed that it was not totally complete, um, that it was just sort of the semblance, but it was just a little ping enough to know that it was still alive, basically, and hadn't been submerged in the water. So it really didn't provide any other information. That's chilling, though, isn't it? It is really chilling. And it's, yeah, it's it's bizarre. Um, So they also think that this signal wasn't completed because other communication systems on the plane were disabled, which this pinging capability kind of depends on. They're interconnected, they're intertwined. So does that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Okay. So they basically all this, all the satellite is just saying like, hey, it's a plane, it's alive, it's not submerged. but they did know for sure that it was flight 370. Um, so at this point, do does everything make sense up yes. to this point? Are we clear on the turn of events and the, yeah. okay, perfect. Um, okay, so at this point, people are just hysterical and devastated. Um, it, Malaysian Airlines is struggling to know what to say. They don't really have any answers. Um, they just know that the last they heard of it was at 8.11. So right now we are gonna talk a little bit about like the search. Um, one second. Okay, so immediately they start deploying, um, there's about 15 countries that began helping with this initial search. Um, They send out their planes, um, Malaysia Airlines, obviously the military, the Thai military send some, um, Indonesia, and then Japan. And, you know, they're just scrambling. They're trying to find anything that they can find. Did they send Um, out the Navy 
I'm presuming kind of into the Strait of Malacca or the Andaman Sea? At a later point, I believe they sent planes out first. Yeah. Um, just to kind of do a cursory, you know, where's the debris field? Is there a debris field? Is there an oil slick? Um, exactly. Um, at this point, okay, I'm trying to... Sorry, you're going to have to edit this part out. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't do much editing. I like just dropped my my notebook on the ground and like splayed out my notes. Like, first time podcaster. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, okay. So right now is kind of a good time to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about Captain Shaw yes. and, and Freak. So Farik Abdul Hamid, the first officer, he was 27 years old and he was engaged to marry another pilot who, yeah. and they met in their training facility. So they, they were both pilots, which is kind of cute. Yeah. And um, just for those, he, who, are, those who are confused, ahead. it's a female pilot. Right, exactly. Like he, yeah, it's a girl pilot, which you is You can't marry a man cool. in Malaysia. Exactly. So he, you know, he wasn't flying under the radar with anything like that. No pun intended. Yeah. But um, she was a female pilot, which I think is kind of cool. She was Malaysian um, that there were females, you know, getting into the industry and, and flying. Um, and his life was really on an upward trajectory. Um, he, he was about to be licensed to fly on... You know, he was about to be licensed to fly the Boeing 777, which is kind of the pinnacle of your career. And he's only 27 years old. Yeah. Um, he was about to to do that. I guess he was really tech savvy, um, outgoing, fun loving, um, loved flying. Like, he looks like a fun guy, although I am thinking of one particular story about him that came out. Tell it. Okay, so uh, <laughs> when, when the plane went missing and I rewatched the interview with the girl last night, um, he, Farik was kind of the secondary character to uh, Zahari. Like we knew less about him and he looks like a fun young guy, but compared to Zahari, he's, he's only got 2,000 hours flying experience compared to Zahari's like almost 20,000 hours or something. And he's, he's a young guy. And a girl, when the plane went missing, uh, within days, she saw the footage and saw the pictures of the pilot and the, the you know, uh, co-pilot. And she went, oh, my God, holy shit. So she got out pictures that she'd had. Now, like, a few months before the crash, she'd been on a holiday. She's a South African girl. She'd been on a holiday with her friend in Phuket, Thailand, and they were flying to Malaysia, I think, to fly back to uh, to connect with a flight to fly back to home or to go somewhere else in Asia. And they were lining up for an, a Malaysia Airlines flight. And as they were lining up to board the flight, much like a rock star would pick someone out of a crowd to get them up on the stage, uh, <laughs> Farik, the co-pilot on MH370, who was, I believe, the co-pilot on this flight, but I want to say that it was not Sahari on this flight with him that I'm about to tell you the story. Uh, it was another young pilot. He picked her out of her and her mate, who, if you saw a picture of him, you'd get it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he uh, basically said, once you get comfortable in your seat, would you like to come up to the cockpit? Now, this used to be a very normal thing 
pre 9-11 we used to go to Queensland uh, once a year on holidays which is like a two-hour flight uh, north of Melbourne and they used to pick out kids you know who were on the flight to come up to the cockpit and you'd look around and you know look at the cockpit and the captain would say hi while you're flying and then you'd go back to your seat and me and my brother got to do that one year and you know you just went up and it was so exciting the captain said do you want to come up yeah you went up there and then you went back to your seat you were there for like one minute um this was back before they just locked the doors no one's no one's getting in that door so uh the protocol is not to have people in the cockpit at any point other than flight crew if they have to and the captain and co-pilot but once these girls got seated on this Malaysia Airlines flight a flight attendant who the girl said did not seem particularly surprised that this was happening which indicates <laughs> it probably happened before said right. come up to the thing so they went up expecting to just be sitting in the cockpit for a couple of minutes and visiting the cockpit even though they're 25 years old and this is usually a thing that three-year-olds do and they um proceeded to spend the entire time including takeoff and landing in the cockpit for this I think over an hour flight it was Farik and another young looking pilot who has gone unnamed she is not just telling a story she's got a million photos of this her posing with Farik she's wearing his captain's hat he's <laughs> he's all over her he's got his arms all over her um and the most concerning thing which kind of upset her and her friend was that because they don't smoke Farik and the captain this other guy were sitting there the whole time during the flight takeoff and landing smoking cigarettes in the cockpit and she said it was essentially like hot boxing because <laughs> like the whole thing was full of smoke do you know and so I looked up like how it worked it's fucked up so a, a Boeing 777 when it detects smoke in this day and age it apparently automatically opens vents that vent it out which is another thing that will come into play in theories and things but this girl was like holy shit so as the plane landed which is you know like it, it's just mad like she was sitting on his lap at one point and stuff this guy is engaged to be married um she he he and his captain mate who looked equally as young as him but I presume was his superior said to her you know if you're gonna hang around Kuala Lumpur let's catch up later tonight and stuff like that and she's got lots of pictures don't of be it. a stranger no yeah. don't be a stranger and <laughs> um she kind of said no we've got plans and we're getting another flight and that was the end of that but when the plane went missing and the pictures came up of Zahari and Farik she said oh my god that co-pilot was the pilot on the flight from Phuket to KL got out her pictures of which she's got a million and it's like something you'd see on the love boat like the pictures it's insane and uh, it was Farik and you know Malaysia Airlines tried to do damage control they came out with a statement saying we do not allow this we don't know why uh, it was allowed but she did specifically say that when they were picked from their seats like once they got settled in their seats and the main stewardess on the flight came up and got them and said you know come up to the cockpit she'd already got their seats ready in the cockpit and stuff because there's jump seats that she got asked by Tracy Grimshaw because she was interviewed on a current affair here in Australia she got asked did the main stewardess seem surprised that this pilot was having pretty young women up in the cockpit and she said no seemed like it had kind of happened before yeah she's like hold on I'll go get the blankets and yeah, then, you know yeah. and so <laughs> I remember when the plane first went missing it was it really just was a big thing 
um, this particular part, not that the media ever really focused on Farik as a person of interest. And to this day, most people do not, including myself. Um, it just shows that despite the fact that, like I've said to you before, I put pilots above most occupations. I It's the one thing I don't want to know how the plane works. Normally, I want to know the ins and outs of everything. And I want to know the answers to things. But in the instance of flying, I'm a really calm flyer. I don't have issues with it. What will be will be. But most of that is because I put so much faith in the pilot's knowledge and the pirate, pirate pilot's professionalism. <laughs> and if I had known like that that was going on on a flight that I was on, I'm not a Karen. I don't really like put complaints in, but I would be putting a complaint into Malaysia Airlines. Um, not only that, but uh, smoking in the cockpit, this isn't 1970 and also just the dangers of that in general and the pictures of them. She said at no point was he looking at the instruments or <laughs> like, it, yeah, it just, yeah. What are your thoughts? Maybe on that's it? why it hasn't, they haven't implemented the technology to stream like the cockpit voice recorder yeah, they don't, up to a cloud because like, they're like, no. Because all they hear is like, do you want to try my yeah. hat on? Yeah, I want to try yeah, Exactly. You know? And they're like, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to limit myself. I mean, what if I'm. <laughs> or, you know, I, I am. Yeah, that's all they hear. Look, I'm getting married, but there's this really cool exactly. bar in downtown KL. If you and your mate are around tonight. Like, exactly. It's just exactly. but I mean we're all we're all flawed people. Um, but I'm just saying it's 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 not normal to do that and it's not professional and uh it just kind of shone a light on things. But I do want to confirm that it was not Captain Zahari on that flight. And as I said to you earlier today, if I believe that if Farik had pulled that shit on a flight with Captain Zahari, how experienced he was, I actually think that Zahari would have pulled him up on it. I think so too, actually yeah. the way it's described. So he was pretty, I get the impression as you do as well, that he's pretty amiable, pretty affable, but also professional. And um, he, he was known for having high expectations, but high yeah. warmth. Yeah. And he, it's funny, he actually, he had a mistress who was actually like, um, she ran the scanner at really the airport. Sorry. Zahari, yes. Yeah. So that's presented by Ian Higgins in one of the in in one of the theories that isn't the predominant theory, but that that is a, a theory. I didn't. And, I did not know that. I knew he'd. Well, they tried very hard to cover up. Uh, I'm sure you'll talk about him a little bit now and his personal life, but they tried very much to cover up the fact that he had family problems and things and paint a picture of a loving father and professional guy. And his grandfather, despite only being 53 or something, he had like seven grandchildren, but um, my, the early press, as I've said to you, was very much against Captain Zahari, but also uh, putting holes in his life. Um, and I could never find confirmation that he had affairs, but, I mean, I haven't read Ian Higgins' book and I do trust him. So you're just confirming now, you know, that that's what Ian Higgins says. He did. And he, his sister would talk about that too. So she'd talk about I've him. Seen really, yeah. Yeah, exactly. She'd talk about him really warmly. Like, oh yeah, we love the guy, but no, he could have done better as far as being faithful. Yeah. And he had his girlfriends and blah, 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 which is, interesting um you you see that a lot um I don't know if that's kind of 
yeah, I don't know. We can delve into that later, but it's just, it's interesting. You talked about really respecting pilots and feeling comfortable and feeling like they are in command. And it's interesting because the same kind of behavior, um, this kind of brings the mental health, you know, fanatic in me to the forefront, but the same kind of features that, and the same kind of components that make a pilot like really good at their job and, and make an individual self-select into that profession, um, you know, everything has an equal and opposite reaction, right? So you actually see this to, to a high degree where you have people who are fairly like thrill-seeking, um, you know, that personality that prefer, that's drawn to aviation, they kind of have a, like a higher dopamine threshold and dopamine is what like makes you feel thrilled and excited about life. And they have a higher threshold for that. So you need more intense career path or more intense experiences um, in order to fulfill that need and sort of feel normal where other people have like a lower threshold. So in that case, you'll see some, and I'm certainly not trying to, you know, broad stroke all pilots and, and I, I'm the same way as you. I respect them and I like really appreciate them and think that they're amazingly quick thinking and have wonderful like executive functioning and they're wonderful. But you but find like, high risk behaviors like across the board. I know what you're going to say exactly. because I, yeah. I I read a lot of like kind of blind items online related to people posting random stuff, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times people often say they have affairs with pilots and all that pilots write kind of blind items and say that they've got, you know, girlfriends in each city. And uh, I, I know what you mean. Like, don't try to not offend people. Like the fact is that that high risk behavior could cross over to or high risk uh, thrill seeking behavior could kind of cross over into uh, their personal lives, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so, yeah, those, those skills that often make somebody with, with that type of personality really passionate and like hyper-focused on something like, like flying, you know, the same skills that make them very good at what they do also can lead them to like really have a need for like external validation or, or female attention or, you know, just kind of that like dopamine hit. You need more of that. Um, and, every, and everybody knows that a pilot's uniform does that for women for sure we're running out of time for this particular zoom segment so we're going to take a break part two of multiple parts of the story will be out in the coming days stay tuned